Welcome to My Fertility Journey, Life Chats with Bianca Bullissian. Hello and thank you for tuning in today. Since I had the idea for this podcast, my next guest was at the very top of my dream list. His full bio would need an episode of its own, so I'm going to keep this short. Dr. Liebrach is the founder and director of Create Fertility Center in Toronto, Canada, which is a reference clinic around the world. He is also a professor at the University of Toronto. He has trainees under his wings, often at the clinic, and he has published over 60 peer-reviewed articles, book chapters, and more. He is also our very own fertility doctor, and he has truly impressed me with his approach, his kindness, and the results that we've gotten with him so far have been amazing. On this chat, we talked about the beginning of his career, how he copes with the ups and downs of being a fertility doctor, and also some of the medical approaches that he uses during treatment, everything from supplements to hormones and medications. It's just jam-packed with great stuff, including some laughs, because he has great sense of humor, and the occasional creak from his chair. Hello, Dr. Liebrach. Um, Thank you for being here. Um, It's a pleasure, and I really thank you for um, giving us your time. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Bianca. I'm really excited to do this interview. So I thought we would start with you telling a little bit about your story from being like a medical student. And I've heard you like talk a little bit about how you um, created the, like founded Create Fertility Clinic, but how you became like from a medical student into a fertility doctor and just sort of guide us how, how you got where, where you are today. Great question. That's a long story. I'll try to make it not too long. Others will take the whole whole hour with that. But uh, basically, um, I was always interested in science as a student in university. And I decided that medicine was the career I wanted to pursue. In fact, my father is also a a doctor. He happens to be an obstetrician gynecologist. Um, Of course, he's retired now, but he uh, was a very prominent one in Toronto. So anyway, when I went into medical school, I had no idea what what specialty or area I wanted to go into, but I I knew that I was very interested in um, science and research and all that sort of thing. And so when I decided on a specialty, I really loved obstetrics and gynecology because I felt it was a wonderful field where people are having children and helping them have children. So I could see where my father got his passion in the same area. And when I started doing my residency in the area in Toronto here, um, I, I felt that the area of fertility or reproductive endocrinology, as we call it, was the area that really interested me the most because, first of all, it, it's like solving puzzles. And I always like to solve puzzles. And because you have two people that have a problem together, in order to solve the problem, you have to look at each one and figure out where the problem is and get it all together and figure out how to help them have that wonderful child that they're dreaming to have. And also, I really love the research in this area because there's so much exciting research and new things to discover. And you always see all, you know, in the, in the press, like new discoveries in the area of fertility that yes. uh, happen all the time. And I, I did a, a, my specialty training um, after my training in Toronto in, in San Francisco, at the University of California, San Francisco, where I trained to become a, a full-fledged special specialist in fertility treatment. And that was a wonderful experience. I even thought about staying there, but my family's here in Toronto, so I decided to come back to practice in, in Canada. And I, I'm really happy I did because I think it's a wonderful place to be a fertility specialist. Yeah. Um, and I, I did um, a lot of training that when I was there in research, so I when I came back, I became a, an academic, meaning part of the University of Toronto. And I worked myself up from being in a, it's called an assistant professor to an associate, and now the highest level, which is a full professor, which is what I am right now. Yeah. 
And so I love the, all the different aspects of what I do, the treatment of patients, uh, the research, and I also do teach a lot of uh, students, you know, that are training in medical school and obstetric gynecology, and in fact, also in basic science. So I have a very, we have the largest um, uh, basic science and clinical uh, research programs in Canada in the area of fertility by far. And so we do, I do a lot of research. I, I wear a lot of hats, you know, what, yes. what I do. But I, of course, I love looking after patients. And that's, that's just incredible. And being able to help them all have children and to, to, to work out the problems and, you know, seeing all the amazing results is amazing. But yeah. it's not, unfortunately, it doesn't work for everybody. And, you know, I try my very best. And the, the good news is that there, what, you know, the things I can do now, which I couldn't do, 30 years ago when I first started in practice, I think back of all those patients I couldn't help, and yet now I could have helped them. It's yes. a little bit sad, but it's also nice for the people I see now that I can help them where I couldn't have done that before. So I love the fact that I have so much more I can do to help people. Unfortunately, not everyone is, we're still not there yet. That's why we need to do research to improve on what we're doing, but we certainly get amazing results uh, nowadays with the treatments we do. Yes, I can imagine. That's the nature of science, right? It's always evolving and it's always, I'm sure in a few years, you're going to feel sorry for the patients today that you couldn't help and that you will in the future. So it's always evolving. That takes me to the next um, thing because in forums, I don't know if you know that, but in forums that we chat, especially around Ontario and Toronto, um, you have a great reputation to help like uh, hard cases, but um, especially older patients and also patients that were diagnosed with DOR. So diagnosed with diminished ovarian reserve. Um, I would like to know if you could just briefly explain what DOR means, um, sort of break it down in layman's terms slightly. So our listeners maybe that are just coming into this or maybe people that won't be knowledgeable on those terms. And also if that is, um, if you find yourself that you are a specialist in that profile, let's call it, of women. And if so, if it is something that you actually actively looked after, like you did research specifically for that, and then you became this um, doctor that looks after these um, women, or if it was sort of an accident and it's just because of everything that you do, like you said, all these hats that you're wearing, that you just ended up in this, um, in this popular position, I will say. <laughs> well, first of all, you're right. I mean, at, when you get to my stage in the career, you tend to get the most difficult cases that people have been to four other clinics and haven't been successful. And they come to me saying, Dr. Liebrach, you're my last resort. Yeah. What, can you, what can you do to help me? And I, I like the fact that a lot of them I can help, which is nice, because I think sometimes people are not looking at the big picture and not able to hone down on those specific problems that the person has to be able to help them. And over the years, you know, I do research in so many areas. I even do stem cell research, and I, I do research in um, areas of different areas of fertility, uh, cancer, fertility, you know, but diminished ovarian reserve or low reserve uh, has been a, a definitely an area that I'm very interested in. Unfortunately, some women who don't have eggs, for example, they obviously have very low reserve or no reserve. They need to have an egg donor, and I do lots and lots of of third-party reproduction with egg donation and of course surrogacy for those who are not able to carry a baby. But for those that are not quite at that stage where they're either don't, are not born without eggs or they have no eggs left where there's really no other hope, um, we do, I treat a lot of those patients and we've been doing a lot of research in this area and I've, I think over the years I've really changed my practice a lot to try to help some of those people. And it's, it's the most difficult challenge, I think, in all of fertility, because these are people who really are, have the most difficult situation. So okay. we, when people have a low reserve, it means that they have not as many eggs that they produce. Now, there's a difference between the quality of the eggs and the quantity. Mm -hmm. So quantity, when it's low, that's a diminished ovarian reserve. But a diminished ovarian reserve in a 33-year-old 
is not the same as a diminished ovarian reserve in a 43-year-old, okay? Because the egg quality in the younger person is better. So they can produce less embryos, but the quality of their embryos tends to be better, or the percentage of them that are capable of producing a baby is higher. Whereas when you're older, you just don't make as many eggs, but even those eggs you make, a lot of them are not normal. So to over, so first of all, one thing that I've learned over the years is that when you give, because we, I used to do this when I first started in practice, I used to give this high, huge dose of drugs thinking if I give you more, you're going to get more eggs, you're going to have more embryos, and that's better for you. That's changed. Now we have much, a different, and, I, and I, not every doctor really kind of understands this, I think, in this field, but we now have the understanding that less is more. In other words, if you give too many drugs, it actually creates a toxic environment for those eggs, and those eggs do not come out as, as good. They're just poor quality. So when you do things more gentle, because the ovaries, because the ovaries, when they have a low reserve, only have so many receptors for the drugs we give them. So all we're doing by giving more drugs is we, we fill up those receptors with the drug. That's what, what a cell responds to a drug. And then the rest, you just pee it out. So you're peeing out thousands of dollars of drugs in the washroom, which is no help to you. That doesn't help you, right? So really, you don't have any, um, you know, there's no advantage to doing that. So now what we do is we do less, we do a lower or minimal stimulation. And now there's other adjuvant treatments that I do a lot that really help in terms of ad, ad, getting good quality. So the first thing is supplements. So there are certain supplements that, in my experience, help a lot to improve the egg quality. The first one is called DHEA, or dihydroepiandrosterone, if you want to know the actual name for it. And that's an incredible hormone that we don't understand a lot about, but it's made by adrenal glands. And those are glands a lot of people don't know about. They're little glands above your kidneys. And this hormone is made in huge amounts when you're young, when you're a teenager and young adult, and then it starts to drop off as you get older. And it's, it seems that it's almost like a, um, a fountain of youth drug. In other words, that it's been found that some, in some studies that using DHEA has actually, may actually improve, improve longevity. So that's a, a nice side effect. But yes. it, it does have a couple of side effects. It does cause a higher sex drive, which I always say, hey, that's not so bad. And yes, then the it's other hopeful, thing, always hopeful. Yeah, and then the <laughs> other thing it does, uh, especially for fertility people where, you know, it becomes a little bit more mundane and routine yeah. having sex just to have a baby versus because you're having a romantic situation. So, yeah. you know, but anyway, increasing long, uh, libido or sex drive, but it also causes acne. It's kind of like I say, you're going back to your teenage years when you had yeah. a higher sex drive. <laughs> And you got acne. So Breakouts, yeah. that's one of the side effects. Not everybody gets a lot, but it is a side effect. But it seems to help your body respond better to the drugs and maybe make more, uh, more eggs and maybe better quality. The other two things that I use are that help the, the little energy packages in the cell called the mitochondria. So if anyone remembers back to their high school biology, or if you took university biology, you remember these little things in the cell called the mitochondria the egg has the most mitochondria of any cell in the body. So if we can improve the quality or the number of mitochondria in the egg cell, we can hopefully improve the eggs. And there's two sort of natural substances that help for that. One is coenzyme Q10. You hear about that a lot. And that actually helps also with your heart. So it's, you're taking it and you may be also helping your heart as well. Um, but it seems to help those energy packages. And just, you know, like it's like I said, it helps increase energy. Well, that's why you don't want to take coenzyme Q at night, because if you do, you're not going to be able to sleep. That's yes. the side effect there. So you take it in the morning and you take a big bunch of it in the morning. We usually use six to 800 milligrams. And that's helpful for the egg quality. The other one is called PQQ, and I'm not going to tell you the long name of that because I can hardly remember it myself. But it's, a, it's also a natural hormone from vegetables by the way, DHEA comes from yams, that's how we get it, and coenzyme Q10 and PQQ come from vegetables as well, and that's another one that increases the energy package. It works together with the CoQ10, 
to improve the mitochondria. So that's one thing that I do a lot to improve egg quality and, and the response to the drugs. And the second one is I use a addition of growth hormone. And growth hormone, again, has been tested as, a, as sort of a fountain of youth uh, that increases longevity. Um, and that drug also seems to help your body to respond better to the medication. And we again get better quality embryos and we and I, in my experience, better pregnancy rate. So that's so that's a, that's one of the things that we have to do to approach the situation. The second thing that we have to always be cognizant of is that you're not going to make as many embryos. One cycle, in almost all cases, not enough. So you see people go to a doctor, they do one cycle with a huge number of drugs, and they get like one embryo and they don't get pregnant. And then they say, well, I didn't work. Well, that's not going to help. It's not going to work if you do yeah. that. Because the one embryo you have, if you're 40 years old, so, so just I think I need to step back a bit. But the most important thing is knowing that the embryo is normal that's going inside you. Because it's such a waste of time to put embryos, especially if you're older, that are abnormal. Because yes. they're just going to result in a failure, a miscarriage, or an abnormal baby. None of those are going to help you your goal, right? Yes. And, and there's a time, a time and money um, involved so much, right? And the stress behind it. Exactly. Yeah. So it, the time, you know, you're 42 years old. You can't afford to just keep doing and get miscarriages, which takes three months to recover from it. You don't want that. You want to get all your embryos you can when you can get them. Because I always say you're never going to be 40. You're never going to be 41 again in your life or 32 mm -hmm. if you have a low reserve you need this is the time when you can get the embryos together that can make your whole family so i always ask people how many babies would you like to have what's your ideal family if you want to have one child okay then i'll look at it a little bit differently if you want to have two or three children that's your ideal family i want to help you have your ideal family i'm not just looking at the next baby i'm looking at a whole family yes. that's what i want to help you create and so, so I have, we want to look at the whole picture to make a strategy to do that, okay? And the strategy that I use is what we call batching. Because if we can collect together a larger number of embryos, then 70% are not normal. But if I have 10 or 9 embryos, which I hope I can get, then I know I'm going to have at least one or two or maybe three that might be normal. And then I'm going to have a chance to achieve the goal. Yes. Have, have, did you did you always do this batching, or is this a more recent thing? When did you start like no, this approach? Yeah. That's a great question. So only in the last three or four years. Mm -hmm. Before that, we didn't really. I don't think I understood the sort of importance of that as much as I do now. And we actually are just publishing or presenting a paper at the American Society of Reproductive Medicine of the mm -hmm. highest. A number of people that have batched embryos, uh, sort of the highest number uh, number in one clinic that have batched embryos, wow. and we actually are showing really good results. And we're getting a very high pregnancy rate, even in those women who are older who make very few eggs. Um, but I do also want to stress it doesn't work for everybody. Yes. You can you can have you know I'll give you a couple examples. I had one lady who had eight who collected eight embryos. Only one was normal. We put it in, and she's pregnant. She has a beautiful baby coming. Had she not done that, all those other seven would have been awful outcomes. She had two that had Down syndrome. Like, that's how bad it was. Yeah. And so that's an example. Another example is somebody who did three or four cycles, and every single embryo, she was 44, almost 45. Of course, the older you get, the more likely this will happen. And all her embryos were abnormal. She now, at least she now knows, she tried her best, and she knows that likely the best option for her is an egg donor, because I can't make her eggs normal. If they're not normal, yeah. there's nothing I can do to help that. Yes. Um, the quality, and, the quality you can help, right? With everything that you're talking about uh, and, and even changing the AMH so it's not as low and, and then the quality is better, but the, but the normality of the genes is not something yet. Maybe that's a future correct, thing. Yeah. yeah. We probably cannot change the AMH. Okay. Change the ability of your ovaries to make eggs 
yes. to get more embryos and more better quality. But yes. AMH is something that's in your body. If I could find out how to change your AMH, I would love that. I'll probably win yes. the Nobel Prize if I did, but we, don't, <laughs> we can't do that yet. So, but, um, so, and, and it's so different when you're 35 or 32, when you have a low reserve, it's terrible to have that low reserve. But on the other hand, you're going to have more, like if I make those eight embryos, I'm going to expect four or five of them to be normal, not one or two. So it's completely different at a different age. But one thing I've discovered in through doing all of this is that a normal embryo in a 42-year-old seems to have just as much chance of success as a normal embryo in a 32-year-old. So once it's normal, then it has a really, really good chance to be successful. Okay. But another caveat, a normal embryo is not always a baby. Okay. Yes. So you have to have enough normal ones to really, that one person that had the one embryo that was normal was lucky because she got preyed on that one embryo, but not everybody does. We find it's about 70% do, but there's still 30% who don't. And people always ask me when you put a normal embryo and it doesn't work, Dr. Liebrach, you tested it. it, was normal, why didn't it work? And so there's, when I look at that, there's a couple of possibilities. One is the embryo, was normal genetically, but there was something else wrong with it that we don't have a test for, a severe yes. brain abnormality or a heart abnormality. The other possibility is that it's something about the person caring. So we have to change things about their body to help them to accept the embryos so they'll be able to carry that baby to full term. Yes. What are, if you can give us examples, you don't have to, because I know it's just so many tests and different situations, but if you have recurrent failed transfers that are just not happening, you don't even have an implantation, what are the next steps and how many do you wait until you do take the next step into different tests? So it depends how many embers I have. <laughs> okay. normal. Um, and, um, you know, there's, two sort of aspects of that. One is called recurrent pregnancy loss, meaning you got pregnant, but you keep losing it. Yes. And that's when you have normal testing embryos and you still lose. So I'm not talking about embryos that are completely abnormal. You're going to lose those anyway. Yeah. And there's also recurrent implantation failure. And again, having normal embryos really tells me that it's something about the embryo or the mother, not that it was abnormal. It's just not going to, it's not going to take anyway. So, so there's a whole sort of set of testing that we do in situations like that. The first one is genetic, that you can have a genetic abnormality in your chromosomes that you're passing on to the fetus. So it could be either the, the woman or the man. And there's a particular condition that's the most common of those called a translocation. And without getting into a lot of detail, it means that one of your chromosomes is stuck on the wrong one and they're sort of crossed over. And we actually developed a test for that to tell if an embryo has the translocation like the parent or doesn't have it. And that's a very difficult thing to do. It may seem simple, but it's very complicated. And we actually published that in the New England Journal of Medicine, the highest journal in medicine from our own genetics lab. So that's one possibility. The second is something to do with infections. So that could be some type of bacteria that you're carrying, or it could be an infection in the uterine lining, and we have to sometimes biopsy it to check the lining and see if there's a bacterial infection there. The third thing is something about your uterus itself, and that could be that it has an abnormal shape to it. It could be there's a polyp in there, there's a fibroid. It could also be that there's a too thin lining, and that's, a, that's one of the biggest challenging ones. We have a new treatment for that called PRP or platelet-rich plasma, which is being used in orthopedics and yes. other areas of medicine. So we have, I have a PhD student of mine that studies this, where we put the PRP in the uterus and it seems to help the lining. I want it, uh, but my caveat there is it doesn't work for everybody, but we've yes. found some really good results in those very, very difficult situations. And why is your lining thin? sometimes no reason we can ever find and sometimes because someone's had multiple dnc's that have caused mm -hmm. scarring in the uterus the other possibility um, is we look for is some type of a hormonal problem that your body you know you may have a thyroid problem or, or milk hormone problem there's many hormonal problems 
The next area that we look at is the immune system. So we look to see if there's something about your body that's attacking or rejecting the embryo. And there's a couple parts to your immune system that do that. One is your autoimmune system, meaning that you're attacking your own body, which is, causes some types of diabetes, thyroid disease, arthritis. So we have to look to see, and many people have a family history of those kinds of diseases, and we have to see if that's the problem. The other one's called natural killer cells. Unfortunately, mm -hmm. there is no good test for that. And I, unfortunately, people sell this test where they check in the blood, but the natural killer cells in your blood are not the ones in your uterus. They're completely different. Mm -hmm. And the persons who do that test don't understand that. So there really is no test. So we have a treatment for that, which is called intralipid, that seems to improve success when somebody has that problem. But again, there is no good test for that. And then the other one is called thrombophilia, where you increase in clotting. Your body clots too easily. Sometimes women have a family history in their family of like blood clots in the legs or lungs in their family members or themselves, or they've had a heart attack or stroke when it was quite young, like 40s or 50s, not in their like 70s or 80s, when you might expect. Mm -hmm. And though there are a number of tests, and we've actually developed a new genetic profile test for that, that we test to see if that's the problem. And that often involves using blood thinners. And then lastly, this is something a lot of clinics don't do, but we test for the sperm DNA fragmentation. So we can sometimes blame the man for this. You know, many things we can't, but here we Only can. sometimes. Only sometimes. <laughs> it's, exactly. There's, there's too much fragmentation of the DNA in the sperm. And that's something we can actually treat with antioxidants. We often use these sort of fertile pro, these male supplements. And that's something that can also cause miscarriages. And then there's people we just don't find a cause. And so we have to try all kinds of tricks to do to help them. Yes. Well, I have to say, like coming in from um, trying to be like from my, my story is I, I found out from not getting pregnant that I couldn't get pregnant. And then we ended up at a clinic and did all the tests and there was no complete like diagnosis except for the low AMH. We tried the treatment right away. It was almost like a desperation situation. It didn't go well. Um, and then I went into a path of like natural and alternative medicine to try and heal my body in that way as much as possible. So then I, when I did go back to treatment again, I, my body was in a better, stronger position. And when I came to you recommended by a friend, the thing that captivated me the most, like apart from just your personality is just amazing, your smile, and you just put us at ease. It was the supplements. Like that was a big thing because I was coming from like seeing a naturopath, which I also shared with you. And you said you were open to, you know, you asked me what I was taking. And so that just really made a difference um, for me because the, my previous experience, I didn't have that they were rolling their eyes with, with the supplements um, idea. So I think that was like really what, what made a huge difference in, in us like really closing the deal, <laughs> if you will, with you. And then um, another thing was that I remember in our first appointment, you see so many people, so um, you probably don't really remember exactly how it went, but I did, again, because of my friend, um, and looking and talking about um, embryo, not embryo, sorry, egg donors. I wanted to have all the information that I wanted on that first time because I didn't know when I was going to see you again. And if I wanted to go into treatment, I just wanted to go right away and not having like follow too many follow-ups, etc. So you didn't even want to talk to me about the egg donors because you're like, no, wait, let's just do this and, and see what's going to happen. And in the end of the day, you were right and we're doing great. Um, and uh, we appreciate everything that you're doing for us. But I wanted to know, like, from you, what makes you decide? Like, do you have a gut feeling that, like, when you're talking to someone, and of course, you're a science man, and you're looking at numbers, right? So you're asking my age, like, every single time. Um, and I, I can imagine just the numbers, like, computing in your mind, right, with everything that you have available for you and where I fit in your puzzle and with the pieces that you have, right? 
right? And what you can do for me. So what makes you decide on what treatment and what recommendation and how often do you end up talking about um, egg donors to a couple in the, or someone in the first place or in the first consultation? You know, that's a great question, but a difficult thing to answer. And I think that, I think what is so important in my field, in this field, is that you cannot use a cookie cutter way of treating people. And I think that's a problem that I see in some of the younger uh, fertility specialists. And, you know, I train a lot of fertility specialists that come from other countries and I train them that you have to look at each person as an individual. And it's not just an individual, it's two individuals, right? Most, yeah. sometimes it's single people, yes, but, yes. but if they have two individuals. And I think that, I don't think that every, for everyone it's the same. It also depends on their, you know, feeling about things. Or really, there's so many things, religious beliefs, so many things you have to put into the mix to make that decision. But one thing you can say is that doing the, if you have a low reserve, that doing something is time sensitive. You have to do it now. You can't wait because your, your reserve is going to go lower and lower and lower. And we need, this is the time we have the opportunity. Egg donation, there's no, is not time sensitive. We can do that anytime. And you know, we, we do it in our clinic up to the age of 56. Now, of wow. course, nobody wants to start their family at 56 if they can avoid it, yes. but there isn't like that time, you know, um, urgency. So we, once we get to a point where we say, look, you know, and, and I always want to have people feel like they've done before they move to that option, which is a wonderful option for some people, and sometimes the only option for some yeah. people, before they move there, I wanted them to feel like they've tried everything possible to get, if they, you know, of course there's financial constraints and all kinds of constraints, but let's just say that wasn't a, a problem, to get, do everything possible to get what they ideally want, which is a baby from their own egg and own sperm. Right? And if that doesn't work, then that's when we can move on to the other option. It's always there. I like people know it's on there. It has a very high success rate. In fact, the highest success rate of anything we do. Mm -hmm. um, so because a donor has, is a young lady who has no problem with fertility. She's in her 20s or early 30s. She doesn't have a fertility problem and she's helping somebody else have a child. So that's kind of the ideal scenario, you know, to use an egg donor. Whereas using a 39 year old egg is not the same, right? But I think that you got to, I have, to, I think I have, it's a discussion with the parents. Sometimes they say, you know what, Dr. Liebrach, we've done all these other things. I'm ready to move on. And I say, you know what, let's, let's do it. Let's go. Because I don't want to force them not to try themselves. Sometimes I get a little disappointed inside when I say, oh my God, I could have helped you. I, I think if you just tried this and this, we could have made yeah. it. It's like you were probably told at some point, you should do an egg donor, right? But yeah. look, you came to me and I said, no, let's try you. Like, why not? You know, you still have the possibility of getting pregnant with your own eggs, which is nice. Now, I don't know your family, but you know, we're gonna, if we want to pass on those genes, well, that's another story. <laughs> exactly. That was a joke, that was a joke. <laughs> exactly, I love that, but, uh, yeah. <laughs> but anyway, so, so it's a very good question, but a very hard one to answer. And there's no yeah. rule for everybody, you know? And look, you have to take into account the eggs, the sperm, you know, what if there's a problem with the sperm too, you know? Yeah. That has to be looked at. What about the uterus? You know, like all these factors, once you put it all together, then you have to come up with a plan of action and either it works or it doesn't and then you move on. Yeah, it's hard, but it's, we, we do appreciate the looking at each person kind of thing and not feel like you're just a number that, you know, fits in a box and then there's a treatment for each box and, and then you just move down the line. So that's, I think that's how I feel at the clinic, like looked at as a person and um, an individual and you're trying to really figure out like, what the hell can I do? <laughs> yeah. um, if we and, could and, go, and it's a, yeah. It's a big decision to go to egg donor because you yeah. feel like, you know, I failed my own eggs. I feel like, you know, I'm, this is, it's, it's, it's a compromise, right? It is a compromise. Yeah. And I'll never forget when I first started in practice, I didn't really understand this, but people would come to me and it would be like, you need, in my mind, you need an egg donor. I mean, 
there's no way, you know, you're 46 years old and you, you don't have any eggs left. But if I told them that right away, the, I, they would just go somewhere else because they want to hear what they want to hear, right? So they feel like they have to try because if they don't try, then they can never, that way they can look back and say, you know, I did my best with Dr. Liebrach. We tried and it didn't work. Now I'm ready to move on. And I think that's a really, really important thing is that people need that, that chance, right? And you yeah. have to respect that. I mean, you know, I have to put myself in their position. I probably would feel the same way, you know? Yes. But there's also things that are not, you know, we know are not going to work. They're unrealistic. But you do what they want. It's your body. You want to do what you want to do. And I'm willing to help you do as much as I can. To, as long as I'm not, you know, giving you false hope. I'm going to yeah. say, look. I don't think the chances are great here, but if you want to try, I'm willing to try. I mean, it's, I don't want to say it's your money, but you know. <laughs> but it is, yeah, it is, it's true. You know? In the end of the and day, you yeah. Can spend it the way you want, but I yeah. also want you to know that we may end up back to where we started. So. Yes. So that's a really important thing. But anyway, go on. I sorry. Yeah, I find no, no. This is also good. Um, I actually was. I'm gonna say something different. I find this journey is full of like little bubbles that sometimes need each of them need closure before you go into the next. And hopefully, you just have one bubble. You know, if you're out there and listening to this, I hope that if you're on the first bubble, it just you stay there and you get your dream baby. But it doesn't happen to a lot of us, right? So I get, I read a lot of questions like, oh, I was recommended IUI, but I feel like I just want to go to IVF first because I feel it's a waste of time and a waste of money. And for me, for example, if we were to be blunt, it was, uh, we did two rounds, um, like two months and two tries, like two days of insemination each cycle. And it was, it was exhausting. It was painful. The, the drugs were crazy, worse than the IVF drugs, to be honest. It was heartbroken, heartbreaking in the end. It wasn't like $10,000, but it was a good chunk of money. So, but, but I also feel like I, we needed to close that bubble before we moved. And I think if I went back, even knowing, you know, I would still have to go through the same because taking that huge leap into the IVF, which was the next uh, bubble for us, was too much at the time, like too much to, to bear, you know? So do you find like that's sort of the case? Yeah, you get everybody's different. Some people yeah. want to be all natural. They don't want drugs. They want to just try everything natural. And if that's what they want to do, I'm happy to help in any way I can in that that way. And then there's other people say like, I don't want to do IUI. I just want to go to IVF right away. You know, yes. other people are more aggressive, maybe more yeah. practical in some ways. Yeah. Um, and sometimes they're right. Maybe they do need to do that. So, mm -hmm. you know, I think each person has to do what they feel comfortable with. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You do a good job like guiding us and making us feel safe as well, I think, with that. Um, um, I wanted to talk about, so frozen transfers. So we did everything that you were talking about, the supplements and the the drugs and the stems. Um, and then we get to the egg retrieval, the fertilization, frozen um, embryos, tested or not tested, regardless of um, the person's situation, we get to the transfer stage. And now there's so many other things that you can do, right? Uh, <laughs> it just never ends. Yeah. So I would like you to just talk a little bit about the, so I just have a, a short list here of, because um, it's my experience, um, embryo glue and the HCG hormone wash and the intralipids. But I know there's more. Yeah. Um, if you can speak a little bit to that yes <laughs> so these i call adjuvant treatments for for embryo transfer right so in most cases if i don't see there being any problem i'll start with the simplest which is just some estrogen and progesterone natural estrogen from from soybeans progesterone from yams and we put the embryo in and we hope that that natural sort of pro uh, uh program will work Sometimes we do try what's called a modified natural frozen transfer where you don't take the estrogen, but we just go by your ovulation. It's a little bit more work to do because you have to come many more times and you don't have any flexibility on when we do the transfer, whereas the medicated one has lots of flexibility. 
between the two protocols, our success is the same. We don't see any difference. But sometimes we'll try one and then try the other just because, you know, you might as well try something yeah. different. Now, the other things we add on uh, often are things like, uh, firstly, embryo glue. So embryo glue is actually called hyaluronin. And it's a special material that goes around the embryo before it's transferred to the uterus. And it's sort of a natural substance, it is a natural substance, that helps it sort of stick better on the wall of the uterus. And there are now a lot of studies that have shown, including uh, from our own clinic, that that inc can increase the odds of success by helping it not sort of slide out and not stay in the uterus. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, we've been getting very good success with that. And it is, you know, there's a cost involved, so I don't always like to recommend it right at the beginning because I want obviously to keep our costs down, but it is something that you can add on to uh, the treatment. The second one you mentioned was the HCG wash. And this is, I always call this my double espresso treatment. So basically what it is, it's the natural HCG hormone, which is the one you measure when you're pregnant. So it's a natural hormone. But what you do is you put it in the uterus before the transfer, about you know, 10, 15, 20 minutes before the transfer. And it goes, it soaks in there. It sort of stays around the inside of the uterus. And then the embryo goes inside. And it, it kind of gives the embryo a little sort of kickstart. Because remember, it's been frozen in most cases. And that frozen embryo seems to need a little bit of a kick to get it going and get start dividing and growing. And that's what the HCG is supposed to do. And again, there's good data to show that may help in these randomized controlled trials that are the and meta-analyses. These, the, these are the statistical types of studies that we read as doctors to try to figure out whether something works or not. Um, but there's still always controversy. There's, you can find studies that say anything you want. Like some say it doesn't work, some say it does. Um, yeah. The other one that I do often is called intralipid. Again, it's basically what I said before earlier in the program, that it's a way of suppressing a part of your immune system called the natural killer cells. And it's a very simple thing. It doesn't really have any side effects unless you're allergic to it. And it's an IV solution that has kind of, a, it's like a food supplement. It was actually discovered by accident. Somebody tried it together with a treatment and they found that the, the placebo, which is the interlipid, worked just as well or better than the treatment. So they said, oh, I don't know why, but then they discovered that it affects these natural killer cells. Anyway. It's an IV solution. It's taken about a week before the transfer. And then it's done again during the early part of the pregnancy. Um, when you first find out you're pregnant, every couple of weeks after that, till you get past the first trimester. The next thing that we do is to add sort of medications that may help. First one is aspirin. It's a, it's a blood thinner, and that's very commonly used. We sometimes use a low dose of steroids to suppress the autoimmune part of your immune system. And we also use a blood thinner called Fragment, or there are other ones, but that one is commonly used in our clinic to take on the day of transfer to help, again, the, the blood flow to the uterus and prevent your body from rejecting the embryo. And that's, that's another thing that we do. And now we're using another one, which is kind of when we're sort of a getting a little bit desperate and I call it, you know, the kitchen sink treatment because you kind of throw everything you can at it. And the last one's called Neupogen. Neupogen is also given by injection subcutaneously and it seems to help both the lining um, to develop more normally and seems to also affect the immune system. It's a bit expensive, so we kind of use it as our, not as our first choice uh, treatment. And then, um, oh yeah, of course, PRP, I mentioned before, if you have a thin lining, would be another treatment we've also used. I love to hear that because I, um, I'm a Pilates instructor, right? So my, I have so many clients that have had that treatment for the knees and the spine. And so it's very cool to see that overlapping of, of research and in the fertility field. Pretty cool. Okay, so I wanted to ask you again a little bit about personally you as a doctor dealing with people in your office, hundreds, hundreds. <laughs> um, I'm sure it's not easy. 
what is the thing that happens in your day that makes it, okay, this is like the best day of my job. Just to give you an example, for example, because I'm a teacher and um, I teach courses in Pilates, the day that my student passes their exam is like the best day of my job. You know, so I'm sure it's, I'm sure well, there's an answer that's pretty the, obvious. It's but... pretty obvious in my job. It's when I yes. go and check the blood and I say, she's pregnant. Yeah. Wow. That's great. <laughs> so happy. Finally, we got her pregnant. Or yes. Sometimes happens on the first time, which is even amazing. But uh, obviously that's the biggest joy in, in the day because, you know, you just can't get any better than that. We tried so hard and it worked, you know, yes. that's amazing. When it doesn't work, obviously it's very hard or if somebody miscarries when they get pregnant or is devastating. So those are very hard parts of the day. That's for sure. Those people need a lot of TLC. They need to be, they need compassion. They need, you know, a lot of handholding and they need, they need to feel like you care. And that's one of yes. the things that I, I always, sort of one of my philosophies is when I'm with a patient, in the room with them, no matter what else is going on in my life or outside and everybody's yelling and they want me, they need me to do something. I have to feel like I'm with that person at that time and they're the only person in the world that matters and I have to try to work with them to help them. Even if it's for three minutes or yeah. three hours, that's very important. Yeah, you're and fully I there. That, I think that patients want to feel like you care, you know? Yeah. If they feel like you don't care, and that they're going to go somewhere else. And, yes. and I do care. And that's the thing about me. You know, I work hard. Yes. I really do care about what I do. And I'm a bit of a perfectionist. So I want to do things well and perf as perfect as I can, you know. Um, and so, so I, I really uh, pride myself in that. Yes, I can. Yeah, I, I, I tell my friends and my family, I'm like, every day I go there. <laughs> Dr. Lee Breck is there. This man always any any time of a break. Night and I'm still here, so you know. <laughs> I know this is like almost that's, seven that's p.m. That's your fault, so I can blame you. It's, you can totally blame me on that one. <laughs> seven a.m. and seven p.m. and I see you, and you're still there. I wanted to know how you, this was the question that came to me. How do you cope personally? And I'm sure um, doctors have to go through this. Um, I've been like thinking about this question and any kind of doctor has to deal with like bad days, even if it's like, I don't know, and not bad days, but like bad things that are happening to the health of a person, even if it's, you know, and a foot doctor or an eye sure. doctor, you yeah. know, there's always something and the doctors that are dealing with like literally life and death situations, um, you're dealing with like hopes and dreams of people that sometimes when we're going through it, it does feel like life and death, even though like logically and rationally, we know it's not. But um, how do you cope personally with seeing all these couples or single people that want and have all these hopes and dreams and it's, it feels so hopeless and so far away sometimes? Well, that's a very good question. It's, it's, a, it's one of the hardest parts of being a doctor, you know, but I always think when I, whenever I get to that point where I'm really like, oh, I'm so sad this happened, this, I always think about it a cousin of mine that I had who was a palliative care doctor. And I said, you know, I could never do that. I could never talk to people I know are dying. And, you know, it's, it's a, it takes a talent to do that, you know, because yeah. you know all your patients are not going to make it, right? Yeah. Um, so I always talked, I always said to him, unfortunately, he passed away from cancer himself, which was awful. Like oh, he sorry. used to work at the end of life and I work at the beginning. I prefer to work at the beginning of life. So, so that was one of the things we always said to each other. But, but I, I think, you know, as a doctor, you kind of have to have some kind of a barrier a bit from your own emotional part. Some doctors have a hard time with that. But, you know, I walk in the door, uh, one patient and they're having a miscarriage and, the next, and then I have to be compassionate you know, try to help them through that. And then I walk to the next room and the next person just found out they're pregnant and they have a beautiful baby growing inside. So it's, it's very, you know, like yeah. a roller coaster to some degree, but at the end of the day, you can't let it, you know, affect you to as a, in a personal way. Otherwise 
you would never be able to cope with all that. And it, it's, it's, a, it's something you learn as a doctor over the years. That that's the only way you can really survive as a doctor. Yes. And it's one of the problems that some doctors get burned out because they, they can't separate that, their personal from their, their job. Yes, I can imagine um, the the challenge. How that, which takes me to to mental health, and how do you advise um, your patients if you do feel that there is a need to address mental health? We know, and especially now, you know, there's just so much going on. Like we could, I, I'm sure, have another hour just talking about how COVID affected the clinic and the patients, um, all the social issues of injustice and everything that's happening as well. But just in the in a more broad way, how do you approach that, and what does the clinic has to offer as well? That, that's such a great question. You know, first of all, we have wonderful counselors that work in our clinic and. Many clinics use outside counselors that they send people to or kind of independent practitioners. I didn't like that because I want to feel like the person that I recommend to my patient is someone who is, is someone I, I feel comfortable with, that they are going to you know, be compassionate and be someone who's going to really give my patients the best psychosocial support. So that's why I've hired four people to do that in our clinic. And I think each one of them is, is fantastic. So that's one thing. I do a lot of psychosocial research as well. I didn't mention that before. Um, we look at all kinds of areas um, for psychosocial research to try to improve on what we do. You know, we're, we can always learn more and how we can be better with our patients, how we can provide better care uh, from a, a psychosocial. Because you're right, psych, the, the mental you know, coping and stress and all that is a huge part of what we do. I feel it's very important. Unfortunately, I can't have the time to, to deal with that in the way I would want to. So that's why I have these great support people in our clinic that do that all the time. That's lovely. That's lovely. Thank you. Well, we're approaching the one hour, so I think we can wrap up. I think this is a nice place to, to wrap up. And thank you for your time always at the clinic and here. I'm sure people are going to gain so much from this conversation. I hope this was the first one of uh, many <laughs> conversations that maybe we can have um, to give people because you're just such a wealth of information. And it really shows that, you, that you're a professor, like you like to educate and and talk to people about your passion and what you love to do so thanks for being here today it was a pleasure Bianca you're, you're great, you ask great questions you're a great interviewer I'm very impressed with you and uh, very it was a lot of fun doing this to you. thank you great thank you so much and we'll see you soon how about that He's just such a real sweet guy, isn't he? And he's in it for all the right reasons. As he said, you know, there's no guarantees. This is such a brutal situation that we're all in, but he is surely doing all he can for each and every patient. Feel free to drop me a message on the reviews and let me know what you thought. And if you have any questions for Dr. Liebrack, please let me know so I can ask him next time that he comes onto the show. This podcast wouldn't be up and running if it wasn't for the help of a few very special people. You can find my special thanks to them all at myfertilityjourney.ca. And if you want to keep in touch, find me on Instagram on at myfertilityjourney.ca. Don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, leave a review to support the show, and share it with anyone you think might benefit from it. Love you all and I'll see you soon.